You're listening to a sermon from Hebron Baptist Church, a church in the northern Kentucky Cincinnati area that's committed to making disciples who make disciples. We want our love for God to be evident in our lives and for the Word of God to bear fruit as we go on mission across the street and around the globe. We hope after hearing this message, you'll connect with us on our website at hebronbaptist.org and visit our campus, not far from I-275 in Hebron, some Sunday morning. Our worship services are at 9.30 or 11. And now, here's a message from God's perfect, life-changing Word. So if you would, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible, that is page 904. So if you can turn there, or turn, we say turn in or on your Bible to that page. Mark 15, we're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to, I'm going to read this to you. Mark 15, starting in verse 21. Actually, in the CSB, it's the end of verse 20, starting with the word they. Verse 20, the end of verse 20 in the CSB, it says, They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema samachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or, or abandoned me? Excuse me. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary and the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. 
In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. And that's the end of our reading of God's word together. May we hear it, may we believe it, and may we obey it. There are four observations we can make from the text. The first one we're going to make this morning is that the crucifixion of Jesus is testimony to how little he was thought of. Let's consider this for a moment. The beginning of our story, somewhat of a strange interlude, it says that they compelled, in one translation, a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. By the way, Cyrene is in northern Africa, so he's pretty far from home. Compelled Simon of Cyrene to help Jesus carry the cross. Likely, uh, he was just handy and a foreigner. So in a Roman mind, maybe less worthy. So this is something that he could easily ask of them and they would just do it. And so they compelled Simon of Cyrene to help Jesus carry the cross. Now, for, uh, if, to help you sort of get your mind wrapped around what this means, Jesus isn't carrying the cross in its entirety. He's just carrying the beam that goes um, horizontally. Uh, and, and he's dying in this point from exhaustion because he's already been flogged and whipped and beaten. And he's already suffering from dehydration. So he's exhausted and dropping the the cross and falling and they're tired of waiting on him. So in their impatience, they flippantly just grab the closest guy who looked like he could handle the weight to help Jesus. There's no ceremony, no one chosen for this task ahead of time. It was just handy. They were thinking expeditiously. And think of it, consider the trial, that what they might call a trial. It was a farce. Wasn't real. Consider the um, charge written against Jesus, written above his head, King of the Jews. Is that a crime? I've never heard of any law against being King of the Jews. But that's what was written. The truth is, they had no charges against him. They never could find any charges against Jesus. So they, uh, just in the interest of saving from a riot, the, the leaders, Pilate and Herod, just sort of passed him off to the lynch mob, so to speak. Both of them testifying to Jesus' innocence, willing, by the way, to just beat him and send him on his way, but the crowds weren't happy with that. They were crying out, crucify, and to keep them from a mob, they... Um, They delivered Jesus over. So the the trial itself is a farce. Um, Think the word, the key word here is flippant. And then look at the soldiers around the base of the cross. 
casting lots for Jesus' clothes. The Bible tells us that Jesus, uh, the, the clothes that he was wearing before being crucified would have been sewn from one piece, likely. And so they didn't want to tear it up, so instead they threw dice to see who would get to keep Jesus' clothes. So they're literally at the foot of the cross where a human being is dying the worst death that a humankind has ever devised. And they're playing dice for his clothes. They had no idea who he was. Lastly, and maybe most pronouncedly, when I was reading this text this past few weeks in preparation, I came across something I'd never noticed before. Verse 44, it says that Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. When, that's when Joseph was coming to Pilate for the body. He was surprised he was already dead. He had to send word to the centurion to find out if, in fact, Jesus was already dead. Why doesn't Pilate know Jesus is already dead? Because he wasn't there. Pilate had something more pressing to do with his day than to witness the Son of God crucified on the cross. We can see from the people's treatment of Jesus and the circumstances that they didn't think much of him. They had other things going on. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Sean and I were in a, in a conference in Indianapolis together uh, with our wives called the Gospel Coalition. It was a very uh, encouraging time for us. and um, it, It's a very big conference. There's about 10,000 people that come to this conference. So you can imagine when 10,000 people descend on the city of Indianapolis, it's rather hard to get a table at a restaurant. Uh, oftentimes after the session, uh, Wendy and I would literally run to, see if, to try to get a table before the crowds got there, or we knew we wouldn't be able to finish lunch or dinner before the break was over. Well, on a couple of occasions, we didn't get there soon enough, and we can see there's a line out the door, and clearly the restaurants were not prepared. They were short-handed, so you know, there was just no place to sit, and there were not going to be a place to sit anytime soon. So, um, but uh, as, as uh, Providence would have it, um, there's 10,000, uh, you know, I don't know how what number of those are, are Baptist and, and teetotalers, so they're... The, the bar's empty. There's a place to sit in the bar. So uh, in the interest of, of getting to eat before um, the conference, we sat, went and sat at the bar. And, uh, this happened twice, once at lunch and once at dinner. And at dinner, um, it so happened there was literally two seats in the whole restaurant together at the end of the bar. So when I went and sat, and uh, as it turns out, the man I was sitting next to was there by himself and hoping to chat. And if you go to a restaurant with me, you've seen I'm always excited to chat. And by the way, let me encourage you to take advantage of those situations. Uh, there are several restaurants where you are inclined to have to sit next to a stranger. Please don't avoid that. Uh, Chipotle is a great place for this, by the way, because they've got those long tables and everybody's sort of sitting together. You, sit, you get to sit next to a stranger. That's God saying, tell them the gospel, right? It's a perfect opportunity because they're just as, feeling just as awkward as you are. So, uh, but anyway, um, by God's grace, uh, I don't always take advantage of these situations before you think that I'm perfect, I'm not, I, I miss this opportunity all the time, but this particular opportunity, by God's grace, fell into my lap. The man started talking to me, and two and a half hours later, we were um, able to have a fairly lengthy gospel conversation. It was, a, it was an encouragement. By the way, his name is written on a ping pong ball in the glass over there. I encourage you guys to take part in that as well. When you have a gospel conversation, write their name down, put it in the glass, 
so that we can see what God is doing. But anyway, um, so I had a gospel conversation with him. And I'm realizing pretty quickly that I'm never going to see this guy again. And I'm always wondering, like, what is the thing that you want to say to a person that you know is lost when you're sharing the gospel with them to make sure that they're going to have something when they leave you, right? You know, you try to get their phone number and maybe they'll call, maybe they won't, maybe they'll text you back, I don't know. But, um, and so the Lord gave two things to my mind that I, I needed to make sure this guy had before I left. Uh, one was that th- I wanted to make sure this guy knew that he has to deal with the reality of the Bible. It exists, and it is the most widely attested book in, the hum- in human history. There's more copies of the Bible, older copies of the Bible, than any other book ever written. We have more reason to believe that the Bible is true than to believe Shakespeare wrote any of the plays that he wrote, or to believe that Homer wrote the Iliad, because we have older, better copies of the Bible. We have no reason to doubt it whatsoever. And anyone who tells you that is so, ask them for examples. They won't be able to give them to you because they're making it up. The Bible is the most widely attested book in the history of mankind. You can believe every bit of it. Now, so I wanted him to be able to do that because he works in the hotel industry. And guess what? Are all over hotels. Gideon Bibles. Praise God for the Gideons. So I knew he'd be able to get a hold of a Bible. So I said, I want you to deal with the fact that you, in order to say that you don't believe God, you have to read the Bible. You have to. Otherwise, you're being intellectually inconsistent. And he's like, you're right. I'm going to try to read that. And I actually had the opportunity to open the Bible with him there at the bar. I ended up missing my night session that way, by the way, but I didn't care because I was just, oh, I love having this conversation. So anyway, so I wanted to leave him with two things. The Bible that he has to deal with, he has to deal with the Bible is true, and he has to deal with the fact that it's available to him and he has to read it or he can't intellectually say that God doesn't exist. The second thing he had to deal with and I wanted to make sure he dealt with is the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is a historical figure. He's attested to outside of the Bible in tons of other literature, both his life, his death, and his resurrection. So he has to deal with the fact that Jesus existed on earth and he has to respond to Jesus at some point in his life. He can't just be ignorant and just make statements without having some sort of facts, right? Those are two facts I wanted to leave him with. And the second one about Jesus, the person of Jesus, is the exact same truth the people around the cross had to deal with and the same truth that you and I have to deal with. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus is testimony to how little he was thought of. Um, How do you handle Jesus? When you encounter the cross in scripture or in conversation, what effect does it have on you? We often busy ourselves with activities and numb our minds with the technologies and but we never at least not to the extent we should consider the cross in so many ways we are like those around the cross that just missed it they didn't grasp who Jesus was at all so the second thing we'll see is that the taunting at Jesus, the taunting at Jesus, is testimony to how little he was understood. So maybe the first thing we notice is they don't know him, the person, who he is. The second thing we notice is they don't know what he was saying, his words. We see in verse 29 that Jesus is misquoted about the temple. He said, destroy the, the one who said he was going to destroy the temple, we'll, we'll raise up in three days. Well, where's your power now, Jesus. Jesus never said he was going to destroy the temple. If you look at John 2, 19, that they're supposed to be quoting Jesus from, 
Jesus doesn't say that he's going to destroy the temple. That's an imperative in the Greek. Jesus is saying the person he's talking to is going to, not a, yeah, is going to destroy the temple. Like, Jesus is almost saying, I dare you to destroy the temple because I'm going to rise, raise it up in three days. So they're, they're misquoting Jesus in verse, 21, or verse 29. Secondly, uh, when they say, Jesus, you know, save yourself. If you're who you say you are, then surely you can come off the cross. Well, this should remind us in this case of uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Um, in Matthew um, 4, verse 5 through 7, Jesus is in the wilderness with the devil. And in fact, he then takes him, perhaps uh, supernaturally, to the top of the temple. And he says, if you jump off this temple and command the angels, they'll come and rescue you and grab you while you're midair. And Jesus responds, and doesn't, he doesn't do that. He's unwilling. And it, it, it's easy for us to think, without realizing we think this, to think that Jesus couldn't do that. But the truth is, would it be a temptation if he wasn't actually capable of doing that very thing? Would Satan be actually tempting Jesus if Jesus were not actually able to jump off the top of the temple and command the angels to rescue him? The answer is he's fully capable of doing that. But he chooses not to. Why? Well, here's the interesting thing in Matthew when, in that temptation situation. Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, he's like, well, okay, I get that. At the service level, it's understandable. And it's right. But if you go to Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, which is what Jesus is quoting here, there's a, there's a, it's a don't do this, do this instead. So don't put the Lord to the test. Instead, obey him. So what Jesus is saying at the temptation, and by extension on the cross, is that, yes, I can save myself. But that would be putting God to the test, and that would be sin. Instead, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to do what God told me to do, what, sent me, what he sent me here to do. In this case, not to jump off the temple in Matthew chapter 4, and in Mark chapter 15, not to come down off the cross. So if we're to understand the cross rightly, we need to understand that every single moment Jesus spent on the cross was willful obedience to the Father. At any moment, he could cry out to the angels and they would, boom, save him. Not only that, but wipe out everyone nearby. If, God, if Jesus wanted to do that, he could, but he did not. So he's clearly misunderstood in this way. Um, in verse 32, it says, if you come down off the cross, they're making fun of Jesus. If you come on the cross, we'll believe everything you've said so far. But we know that's not true. We think, and maybe that reminds us of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There's a parable where uh, there's this rich man, he's wealthy, he's got everything he ever wanted in life, and you got Lazarus, this other character who's been poor and, and, and sick and had a, just a, what we might say, a terrible life, and both of them die. And Lazarus goes to heaven, and old King James says, to rest in the bosom of Abraham. So I always think of this like a big bear hug with Abraham, you know. Finally, this misery is over, and he gets to spend eternity with God, Right? And then the rich man is down in hell because he's had everything he wanted and so he didn't seek the Lord. He didn't need God. But when he gets down there, he realizes it's a mistake. And so he says, 
Abraham, please send someone to tell my family where I am so they can avoid this. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They've heard everything you've heard. They know how to avoid this. If they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they're certainly not going to listen to anyone that I sent. The same is for Jesus. He knows that if he comes off the cross, they won't believe him anyway because they've already received the word and they've already disobeyed it because they put him on the cross in the first place. So he's misquoted uh, about the temple. He, he's misunderstood when it comes to the ability to save himself. Uh, he's certainly misunderstood in the sense that uh, he's going to come off this cross so that a couple of guys believe in him, which he knows they won't. And then lastly, when Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthani, there are some who say in the crowd, they're always calling for Elijah. He's stuttering. Eloi, Eloi. He's, he's trying to say Elijah, but he's stuttering, right? The, but but they're, they're, they're understanding. It was important for him to say that twice. Why? Because in Psalm 22, when David says, my God, my God, he says, Eloi, Eloi. So Jesus is making sure that everyone who's listening and everyone who is reading knows that Jesus is pointing himself to David. He is identifying with David in the psalm that we read earlier, by the way. Um, and so now he's not calling for Elijah. And by, by calling for Elijah, what they think that Jesus thinks is that by calling out for Elijah, that Elijah will come and bring the day of the Lord. And so this suffering that Jesus is experiencing would be over. That's what they think. They got it totally wrong. Jesus is calling out to God himself, saying that he has indeed been forsaken, but also saying that he is, as his charge written above him says, the king of the Jews, because he's quoting David, the first and the model king for Israel. We need to listen closely to the scriptures. Now I'm going to give my children a hard time. So my children have this um, amazing, cutting-edge way of learning things, okay? And this is how it works. They ask a question, and then they tell you the answer. You might think they might wait to find out what the answer is. No, 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 no. They don't want to know what you think. They want to tell you what they think, right? We're, we're, by the way, we're totally nailing it with homeschooling right now, you know, teaching them this way. They've learned a lot about what they don't know. Um, yeah, but, but I give them a hard time, but aren't we the same way? Don't we sort of come to God with our assumptions before we ever even listen to what he's saying? Much like the people are at the cross who sort of come with these biases that Jesus could not possibly be who he was saying, and so they ridicule him and they... Um, they throw food at him. And... So we need to listen closely. And since we know that, because we see other people's reaction in the text where they misunderstand, then we realize that the cross, the work of Jesus on the cross, is that message, those words, are inclined to be misunderstood. Not because the message is ununderstandable, but because we're inclined not to listen. In fact, our hearts are bent from birth to think that that's baloney. That's not new to the 21st century. That's been the case since Genesis chapter 3, when we first chose to rebel against God. From that point on, without Christ, our hearts are bent to disbelieve everything God has said. 
And so because our hearts are inclined to disbelief, we need to take a very sobering look inward and think, do I really understand the cross the way Jesus intended for it to be understood? Because we see examples of people who don't get it. So the first thing, the crucifixion of Jesus is a testimony to how little he was thought of. The second thing we see is that the taunting at Jesus is testifying, testimony to how little he was understood. The third thing we see is the reaction of Jesus is testimony to how much he endured. So the first thing we're look, we looked at is his person. The second thing we looked at were his words. The third thing we look at is his reaction. What's he doing? What's happening? What's, what's going on? Verse 23, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. And maybe you were like me when you read that and you went, why is that little detail in there? What's the myrrh for? Now, we think myrrh, we naturally go to what? Wise men that bring gifts to Jesus at his birth. Well, that wasn't what was intended, right? Because myrrh would have been something that the first readers of Mark would have gone, oh, I know what that's for. Myrrh, in this circumstance, was used as an analgesic. It was intended to, to lessen the pain of the cross. They were being merciful to Jesus, okay? Um, which may be surprising to you, but they were actually offering him a little bit of respite to, to dull his nerves so that it wouldn't be quite so painful. Some might say they were giving it to him so, to, so that he might last longer on the cross, so he'd be more miserable. I don't know. I don't want to emphasize the motivation. What I want to emphasize is what Jesus did with it. He didn't take it, right? He didn't take it. Why? I mean, wouldn't his work on the cross be just as effective if he was numb to it? The answer is no. Because our sin requires that pain of us, requires us to feel every single sting of every single pain that Jesus experienced, and he wanted to experience all of it for us. He kept his wits about him to feel everything so that we would have to feel none of it. So he didn't take the wine so that he would be feeling every bit of the pain. He stays on the cross. We just said this. Every moment Jesus is on the cross, he's making a conscious decision not to get off of it. Thirdly, the cry that he cries out to God. Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, this is good news. Do you know why that's good news? Because we'll never have to say that. We will never have to cry out to God. If we are in Christ, we will never have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the moment that comes to our lips, we will never not think of Jesus saying those very words and realize that we are not on the that Jesus was forsaken for us. So we see in these things, in a way, what's going on in, in Jesus' mind, sort of behind the curtain, so to speak. It's an easy way to, it's a good way to try to understand the motivation behind somebody. I think of an example. Um, I had the opportunity a few months ago uh, to, to help serve uh, some homeless people food. And it's funny when you experience that, and I encourage you to do that, so don't let what I'm about to say discourage you from that, but there are, are always inevitably one or two folks there that don't actually need it, or at least haven't realized yet, and so they're picky. Like, I don't, I don't want to eat that. I don't like that. And so that tells you a lot about what's going on in their mind, right? That they, they, they're, they feel like entitled, and, and there's just one or, few, one or two. I'm not talking, this is, please, 
reach out to the homeless. We have a great ministry here, a uh, food pantry here. I would encourage you to be a part of. But inevitably, in every crowd, there's one or two people that are there that probably need, still haven't learned the lesson yet. And so they're, they're picky. And they're, they're, they're not grateful, right? And their emotion teaches us what they're thinking. In the same way, Jesus, in, in the, that's the negative. In the positive, Jesus' emotion gives us a sense of what he's doing, what he's going through, how much resolve he has to, to obey God. So in the same way that Jesus has this emotional connection between uh, what's going on to him and what he knows he has to do, we need to have that same emotional connection to the cross. So every boast or lie we tell represents a labored breath of Jesus on the cross. Every lust or gluttony reminds us of the pain in Jesus' wrists and feet Every hateful thought and arrogance that we think about is the thorny crown migraine that Jesus is experiencing as the thorns are thrust into his skull. Might our sin point always to those things? Because when it does, it reminds us, for one, that we should stop and that we can stop and repent and turn from those sins, and two, that those sins, even those sins, have been paid for by Jesus. So we're, we're convicted by our sin, but we are also reminded of every moment, every pain that Jesus took, he did it on purpose. He is at no point a victim, except only of the Father's wrath. But he is in total control. If he wanted to come off the cross, he would come off the cross. So he wanted to remain, which is love. So every pain he feels is our sin and every moment he remains is his love for us. As we said, Christ's abandonment represents no abandonment for us. So lastly, we see then that the circumstances of Jesus' death and burial are testimony to the effect he has had and has on his followers. We look at verse 40 to 41 in the text. It talks about the women looking on from a distance. And you're like, why is that in there? Well, it's, they mention the women's names. And if you've read the rest of the story, you know what those women did in the next chapter. Those are the women who found the tomb empty. So that testifies to the fact that they knew, they both knew that Jesus had died because they saw it happen. And they knew later, as we'll get to next week, that Jesus rose from the dead. But also, it says that they followed him to Jerusalem, right? Now, this is an interesting thing because in, in, the, in the Gospels, whenever it says that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, this is one of the few things, by the way, the disciples pick up on pretty well. They know what Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do. And oftentimes, his followers part ways with him when he says he's going to Jerusalem. Not his disciples, not like the twelve. But like other followers, when they hear he's resolute to go to Jerusalem, they turn and they go. They're not interested in following Jesus to his death. But these women, it says they followed him to Jerusalem. And they're standing near the cross, well, far off from the cross, but certainly in the crowd, identifying with Jesus, risking their lives and their reputations. Secondly, in verse 39, we see the response of the centurion. This guy's been hurling insults at Jesus all day. 
But it says, and this is an interesting quote, he says that he, in verse 39, when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, how can Jesus breathe? Just breathe, not even speak. Not sign language, not write something down. He just breathed. And the manner in which Jesus breathed, the centurion believed. Man, I wish I had that ability. In that moment, and there's a power in everyone's last words, right? Because in that moment, you see what a person really, apart from, from, from you know, mental faculties breaking down, which do happen sometimes at the end of, end of life, but if, if the person has their, has their wits about them at the end, their last words are a powerful thing because nobody dies for a lie. What's interesting, and I want to testimony to Jesus' resurrection, is that all of the remaining 11 disciples, not Judas, well, Judas ended up killing himself, but their other 11, all, virtually all of them ended up dying martyrs' deaths. They believed in Jesus' resurrection to the very end. And the women believed in Jesus to the very end. And Jesus believed in Jesus, you could say, to the very end. So when the centurion sees that at the end, Jesus never recants, he never says, I'm sorry, I said the wrong thing, I didn't actually believe that, please help me, he never cried out like that, and he died. And so the centurion looks at Jesus and says, that man is the son of God, because he saw the way that he died. So it, it changed him right there in that moment to believe. We see the curtain torn, right? That curtain, uh, I love this because if you read in, in, in Exodus and in Leviticus, there's a little bit more detail about how that curtain is constructed. There's some needlework on that curtain. It's not just solid color, right? There's, there's a picture on it. The picture on that curtain is a picture of the seraphim. You're like, okay, that's cool. There's some angels on it, big whoop. No. The seraphim is the angel who was sent to guard the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. When, the, when man and the woman, they sin the garden, and they're expelled out, and there's a seraphim with a flaming sword pointing in every direction. That is a scary image, by the way. And so every time the priest would approach the Holy of Holies and see that curtain, he was reminded of that angel that guards the way because of our sin to paradise, to being with God. So that curtain symbolized sin, that separation between us and God. And that curtain rips in two at the moment of Jesus' death. And the cool thing about it is, it rips from top to bottom. I wouldn't have come up with that. Do you know why that's important? Because you might say, oh, there must have been two guys standing at the bottom, just waiting for, you know, right at the moment, like, hey, he's dead, you know, and they, it didn't happen that way. In fact, that curtain was so tall that without a ladder, you wouldn't have been able to tear it from top to bottom. So guess who did the tearing? God did. Because at that moment where Jesus dies, the thing that separates us and God is torn in half, starting on his side. Because he was the one who brought down that barrier between us and him. So that we can forever give him glory and all honor for doing that for us. So the effect that that has on his followers is that we are now no longer separated from God. 
If you are a follower of Christ, there is no sin that could separate you from the love of God. Good news, isn't it? Lastly, we see Joseph go to to Pilate and ask for the body. Have you ever considered what this cost Joseph of Arimathea? He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He's kind of a bigwig in the temple. Everybody knows him. He's a big deal. And consider why they were about to take Jesus off the cross. It's about to be sundown. Sabbath begins at sundown, which means when Joseph goes and takes the dead body of Jesus, he is touching a dead body. If we look in the book of Leviticus, we we learn that the moment you touch a dead body, you are ritually unclean for at least 24 hours. And if that 24 hours, and everything to do with 24 hours, if it happens on a Sabbath, it doesn't happen until the next day, which means Joseph was gonna miss out on Sabbath day worship as a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, right? That would have be a, a, a tad like one of, our, one, of our, one of us pastors not showing up on Sunday morning because we were drunk all night, right? In their eyes, that would have been just as scandalous for Joseph not to be present at the temple on the Sabbath would have been just as scandalous. And he took that scandal on himself when he goes to Jesus and when he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. He makes himself ritually unclean. And it's not just any Sabbath, by the way. It's Passover. This is the Super Bowl Sunday of Sanhedrin, right? For like, this is a bit like, you know, remember I mentioned how scandalous it would be if one of our pastors was out, you know, missed Sunday morning because we were still sleeping off the night before, right? Okay, imagine that next Sunday on Easter, right? This is the most important Sabbath of the year, and Joseph is going to miss it. Why? Because he was a follower of Jesus and paid that cost to follow him, was ready to pay that cost, right? So, okay, so the circumstances of Jesus' death and burial are testimony to the effect that he had on his followers. Jesus' effect on the people who follow him is that he makes them ready to count and take the cost of obedience. Because we know that that cost is limited. It's limited by what Jesus has already done. We will not have to die for our sins. We will not have to cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a matter of fact, for us, the cost is much less than in other places. In China, for instance, uh, seminary to us is prison to a Chinese pastor. In fact, a lot of people say that they don't trust a pastor in China until he's been to prison. Sort of that proving ground for faithfulness. You don't have to experience that in this country, thank God. But I wonder what the proving ground might be for us as believers. What cost ought we incur to follow God? If you're not paying a cost to follow God, myself included, I'm not sure that we're getting it. I'm not sure we've understood the cross. So having heard all of these things and studied these things, I wanna, let's walk away with three applications, three things that we, as followers of what it means to follow God. For one, to follow him is to love and to long for him. I think about the women at the, at the um, cross who are there to see Jesus die and those same women who show up at the, the tomb, not expecting him to be gone, but expecting to clean him up because they missed the opportunity because of the Sabbath. They loved him and they longed for him. They missed him. 
Their hearts were broken because he was gone. So the, the followers of Jesus love him and they long for him. The second thing is that they testify to him. That's what the centurion was doing. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. At great risk to himself, by the way. Don't you think after he said that, that the soldiers around him ridiculed him for saying that? And thirdly, to follow him is to love and long for him, to testify, and lastly, it is to pay a cost. It's not to pay a cost for your sins, by the way. Those are paid for. It's to pay the cost of following him because Jesus calls that taking up my cross. We don't have to die for our sins, but some of us will have to die for him. That doesn't always mean being killed. Sometimes that means losing our reputation. Sometimes that means speaking out in a situation where we might look ridiculous. So it, maybe it means having a gospel conversation with somebody that you're afraid they're going to say something that you don't have a defense for. You don't have a, a question you might have an answer to. And you think, what if I'm wrong? Maybe you don't say that out loud, but maybe you're thinking it. What if I find out I'm wrong? Can we put our faith on the line and reach out and have that conversation? Because if we look at what Jesus did for us, we can have unshakable confidence that we're not actually putting our faith on the line at all. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? We'll look at that more next week. But we have that power in our lives, that unshakable confidence of knowing what Jesus did, that he truly is the Son of God. And that we can have our sins forgiven and that we can be mobilized to be fearless for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that inevitably, because inevitably there are some in our midst who, like the uh, people around the cross, have not understood it. They've not known Jesus. Maybe uh, I myself haven't known Jesus in his fullness. Probably haven't. Lord, I pray that we would know him, that we would understand him, that we believe him, and that we would follow him. And if there are some among us who have yet to do those things, I pray this morning even that you would help them to step out and to believe. For, for many of us who have heard this story over and over and over again, uh, I pray that the areas in which that we've misunderstood it, I pray that we would now understand it rightly, not so that we'd be puffed up with knowledge, but so that we would rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and that we would go and testify to the work of Christ in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Hebron Baptist Church. We pray as you have listened, the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart that you may faithfully follow Him. Most importantly, we hope that you've been drawn into a relationship with God. At Hebron, we believe that the gospel is the central message of the Bible. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and died for our sins. But he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. The most appropriate response to hearing this good news is turning from sin and turning to Christ. Don't stay far from God. Instead, repent and believe in Christ and be brought into an intimate relationship with Him. If you would like more information about this life-changing decision, please contact us through our website at hebronbaptist.org, or even better, come see us on a Sunday morning. May God bless you as you follow Him.